0: All right, good afternoon crossroads, can you hear me? Yeah? All right, so today we're not going to do a lot of Hebrew, so you don't have to worry about it, but we're going to read a lot of scripture today. All right? So thank you for the opportunity. Today we're actually going to look at 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. Can you look with me, please, on the screen? Right. sorry, before we, we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Um, open not only our ears, but also our hearts and minds. As we hear your precious word, that it may convict our hearts and pierce our marrow. And that may your Holy Spirit spur us to worship. In the name of your Son, amen. All right, how many of you have actually finished reading 1 Samuel 15? Anybody? All right, okay. Let's look at it. This chapter is, uh, has a lot of verses to it, so I'm going to read it, okay, to, for all of us. So here we look at King Saul and how, what God does with him. He rejects him. In verse, f- verse 1, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way, when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, oxen, sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 4, so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Teliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to Canaanites, Go depart down, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shu, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from me from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was very angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. Verse 12, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he has set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, blessed be you, And Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, from the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And then he said to him, speak. Verse 17, and Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, and you are, not, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the, Lord, in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone down on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And what did Samuel say in verse 22? He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his, rope, uh, his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Verse 32, Then Samuel said, Bring bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. All right, that's a lot of scripture. Did it make you feel good? Not really. All right, so what are we talking about today? Here's a story of partial obedience and its consequences. There are many similar stories in scripture, but this account of King Saul stands out very uniquely. This passage in 1 Samuel is packed with so much truth. And there are so many areas to look at, but given the limited time that we have, today I'm just focusing on two areas. The first one, the problem with partial obedience and reinterpreting God's word. And the second one, how we ought to deal with sin as believers. So quickly on the background of the Amalekites, who are these people? They were a descendant of Esau. Remember Esau. Brother Jacob, the hairy one, the nomadic tribe and a recurring enemy of Israel. The first account of the conflict between the Amalekites and Israel was found in Exodus 17. Do you remember the story of Moses with the raised hands? Every time he raised his hands, Israel won, and when they put it down, they lost. And in Deuteronomy 25, God puts in law for Israel to blot out Amalek from under heaven because of their wickedness. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, you see the Amalekites attack David's entourage. What do they do? They kidnap the women and the children. In 2 Samuel, an Amalekite tells David that he killed Saul. And what does David do to him? He kills him. In the book of Esther, remember Haman? He's an Agagite, also a descendant of Amalek. And what did he do? He plotted the extermination of the Jews. So the focus today is not about which people are enemies of God, because we all are. So if we look at Romans 5, 10, it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Instead, today I would like to borrow the account of King Saul as an illustration of how we are to respond to God's Word and how we are to deal with sin. This graphic account is both a warning of the sin of selective obedience. We pick and choose what we like and don't like. The righteousness of God's holy wrath and how we as believers are to deal with sin. In verses 1 to 3, you see Samuel come to Saul with a command from God. Note that this is not the first time that Samuel has tasked King Saul with a command from God. Saul was tested just a few chapters before and he failed pretty badly. So here we see God giving Saul another chance. His final chance to, whether, to see whether he will obey him completely. So verses 4 to 5, Saul obeys and he goes for battle. In verse 6, we see Saul spare the Canaanites. And these were close relatives of Moses. And they journeyed with Israel in the wilderness, in the desert, during the 40 years. And afterward, they settled south of Judah. So Saul did rightly by sparing the Canaanites. In verses seven to nine, we see that Saul's battle is actually a great success, but what happens? Immediately after, he spares Agag, the king of the Amalekites. What do you think Saul was doing with the king? He was probably parading him around like a trophy, having him strapped up on a horse, walking through the city, right? Enjoying the praises from his people. And notice how Saul and the people began to compromise with Amalek. They not only spared Agag, but they kept the best of the animals and spoiled and refused to destroy them. In the second half of verse 9, you see this statement. All that the people thought was worthless, they destroyed. And they kept what they thought was best. What do we see here? What did God say? He said destroy everything. And what did Saul and the people do? They reinterpreted what God said and made exceptions for themselves. They said, God, don't worry about it. Let me tell you what's better." Okay? So God's command was very clear. Saul was to totally destroy the Amalekites. No hostages to be taken. So the implication is no spoils either. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room. The question that every single person sitting here is thinking about. Okay, how can a God of steadfast love, mercy, and grace execute such severe judgment on this tribe, especially killing women and children, correct? Yes? How many of you heard friends ask you this question? Okay, let's see. So this is not the focus today. So God's specific judgment and ancient Israel as a theocratic state is not the focus today. But I'll leave you with this. God cannot deny himself, and his thoughts and decisions are in line with his perfect will. If you look at Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, this is when God showed himself to Moses. Moses only saw a glimpse of his back, remember, the back of Christ. What does he say? The Lord, the Lord God, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, so God's holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, love, grace was fully displayed on the cross with the death of his only son, Jesus Christ. Okay? So Jesus Christ was not spared the cross because of God's perfect love. Jesus hung on the cross because God's love is perfect. Okay? So Jesus hung on the cross because God's love is perfect. Okay? So remember Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. All right, so back to verse 9, we see Saul's partial obedience. And in verse 11, God says, I regret that I've made Saul king. Here we see the use of anthropomorphic language. So what does it mean? It means using human traits to tell a story. How will we describe an infinite God with finite human human terms? So think of the word love, biblically speaking. How is that displayed from the throne of heaven? Ultimately, in the redemption of man through the sacrifice of God's son. So God regretted is not as how we think of it, humanly speaking, as if God was shaking his head in disappointment and making that sound... You know this sound? Every time you're disappointed, this, you know. I know I do this a lot as a parent. I think we we do this like at least 150 times a day. (laughs) But this is not the case. As we see later in verse 29, when it says, the glory of the Lord will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So think about it this way. This is God's final test for King Saul to see if he would obey. If he did, he would keep his kingship. So, if Saul, God was testing if Saul would love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Saul failed the test. You can say that the expression of regret was the result of God's strong desire for Saul to repent. It is like someone repeatedly rejecting the grace and mercy that God extends. So this entire conversation that Saul has with Samuel really reminds me of my conversation with our children. (laughs) It typically goes like this. Why didn't you pack your room? And this is like after asking them like 50 times. And the usual response is what? But I did pack my room. Just not the clothes on the floor. But I did do it. All right? You can fill in the blanks on how this conversation goes on a daily basis. How many of you have heard this like a million times? Yeah? All right, let's dig deeper in verse 12. Saul's obedience was not only partial, but what he did after his victory shows us where his heart was. What did Saul do after defeating the Amalekites? He made a monument of himself. He presumed that he did what God commanded. And God was pleased and proceeded to congratulate himself and reward himself. Give himself a big pat on his back. His presumption and selfish ambition were disguised as building the kingdom of God. So Saul comes to Samuel with great confidence and assuming that Samuel will congratulate him for the victory and overlook his partial obedience. Saul was essentially saying to Samuel, hey, look, I know what God said, but you know what? In this circumstance, I think I know better. This would bring better results. This is more practical. Come on. We have the animals, use the animals and do, use it for sacrifice. What does Samuel say to him? "Oh really, You obey God." Then what is the sound of the animals that I hear? And what happens next? Here comes the blame shifting from the leader to the people. Again, we see the self-justification of partial obedience for the advancement of God's kingdom. Saul falsely protesting innocence alongside what? Religious narcissism. Using the sacrifice as a substitute for obedience. And in verses 16 to 19, Samuel stops Saul in his tracks and he lays it down for him. He says, stop. Enough already. I will tell you what God said to me. And the end of the verse, it says, why did you not obey the Lord? And why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of God, in the eyes of the Lord? And what does Saul say? He doubles down. Here his partial obedience has morphed into rebellion. And Saul masquerades it with opulent religiosity. The people did this, Saul says. I have no idea. I wasn't there. Whatever they did was out of good intentions. And it was so that they could sacrifice to your God. Sounds valid? Pretty valid, right? So in today's context, it would sound like this, okay? God will understand as long as we are sincere and we have the right intentions and we show God's love and we love our neighbor. Sound familiar? We can't get everything right. Some are good at worship, some are good at community. So be careful when godly obedience is substituted for religiosity. Okay, it is subtle rebellion covered with acts of service. Verse 22 to 23, how does Samuel respond? He says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as sin of idolatry. So a third time's a charm. Only after being utterly exposed, Saul confesses and gives the reason of his disobedience, the fear of men. So rejecting the word of the Lord, the teaching of Scripture, is as good as rejecting Christ Himself. He's the Word. He's the Logos in flesh. So what does John 14 verse 15 say? If you love me, you will build me a big church. Yes? No. What does it say? If you love me, you will have an amazing worship service. If you love me, you will have a great revival. No, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Matthew 28, how does it end? Jesus tells us, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. If God's voice is not heard anymore, the voice of another will be heard. In your free time, I would encourage you to read what happens to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Okay? Look at verse 25 and 26. So Saul does not want to let the people see Samuel rejecting him. At that time, if you had the prophet rejecting the king, it means that his kingship is over. Okay? So it all becomes an exercise in public relations. Okay, like a politician, Saul's main concern is image preservation and manipulation. In today's context, what does Saul do? He immediately hires a PR firm, right? He goes out, hires a PR firm to do damage control, okay? In social media terms, what was Saul trying to say to Samuel? It says, please continue to put your stamp of approval on me so that my followers on Instagram will see that God's anointing is still on me. I will need to manage, I will need my image to continue as it is. Let's ask ourselves, where have we seen this practice? PR, everywhere. Do we care about honoring God or do we care more about our image? Verse 27 to 29, Saul reaches out and tears the mantle of Samuel. This is in contrast with David cutting off a corner of Saul's robe when he was hiding in the cave in 1 Samuel 24. right? And so in te- tearing off Samuel's mantle, Saul's fate was sealed. He knew David was to be king and therefore started to go after David in the subsequent chapters. Verse 30 to 31 Saul continues to ask Samuel for public affirmation. That is his only concern, preservation of his reputation and false worship. How does the story end? Verse 32 to 33, Samuel completes God's command. This is graphic. It says, Samuel hacks King Agag to pieces. Sometimes we read the story to children and we just go, we skip right over it. What are some of the takeaways? As believers, we are forgiven and saved by what Christ has done on the cross. But we do not live in sinless perfection. There remains a tendency of sin in our lives. Even though we're covered by the blood of Christ and Christ is our advocate in heaven, we still sin. And worse, sometimes we derive pleasure from it. We struggle with sin and sometimes we fall into the deep end. Our thoughts and our words are not always what they ought to be. Our minds and our desires are often set on the world. And we often go cold to hearing the word of the Lord. We become disinterested and lukewarm, like the church of Laodicea. Looking at Romans 6.14, it seems like everything should be different. Paul says, "For sin will have no dominion over you, for you, you are not under law, but under grace." In verse 17, it says, "But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were commanded or you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." So if indeed sin does not have dominion over us, if indeed we are no longer slaves of sin, why do we still battle with sin? The answer is because we are still in the flesh. There will come a time when we will have an eternal body, the one like the resurrected Christ, free of sinful desires, but we are in the now, in the already and the not yet. We are already heading towards a new body but we are still in the flesh. Okay, we have been saved from the penalty of sin and that Christ took the penalty himself by dying on the cross. We have been saved from the dominating power of sin in that sin's mastery over us is broken and we do not have to obey it. But we are to subdue it. We are to subdue sin. In the same book in Romans 7 15 to 24, Paul wrestles with the flesh. And in verse 16, he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. How many of us here hate sin? Or the fact that we're still vulnerable to sinning? Nobody? Okay. If we can't say amen, we ought to say ouch. Okay? (laughs) More importantly, do we try to reinterpret God's word? Do we presume God is approving of our actions because the church numbers are growing? Because we are serving in every ministry and attending every event? Do we set up a monument of ourselves in our hearts, congratulating ourselves for all that we have done for God? So the question we always ask is, does God love me? Or is His grace sufficient? We don't need to ask that all the time. We know that it's true, though we do need reminders time and again. I don't think we ask this enough. The question is, do we love God enough? Do we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, and our strength? Or is Jesus just an accessory that we put on when we go out? Compromising with sin starts with partial obedience and reinterpreting God's word and the way we deal with sin is the way Samuel dealt with Agag, using the word of God and hacking at our sin. Not literally, but in thought and in deed. So to apply all these principles in our lives, here are some things we ought to know. Firstly, sin is not killed when it's merely covered up. Secondly, sin is not killed when it's only internalized, meaning we're still outwardly religious. We go to meetings, we pray five times a day, and so on. Remember in Matthew 5, when Jesus said, If you have anger against your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. If you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery. Thirdly, sin is not killed when it is exchanged for a lesser sin. And lastly, Sin is not killed when it's repressed. We deal with our sin boldly when we strike it at the head. We deal with sin with hacking it to pieces. And that takes practice. It is a lifelong task. This is not about being legalistic, but this is about being properly discipled. So let me end with a sports illustration. How many hours do you think an average professional sport person will spend on his or her game. More than a lot, okay? On average, golfers, professional golfers hit about 500 balls a day. Junior professional tennis players, they need to hit at least 50,000 balls on average to get somewhere good. Pro cyclists on average cover 13,000 miles during the year of training. Marathon runners, as Colin Collette, 30 to 50 miles a week, and ultra-marathon runners, 100 miles a week. So you get the drift. If it takes this much time and dedication to perfect a sport or a job even, then these are not even eternal endeavors. How much more do we need to have the discipline and practice in our spiritual walk? In Galatians five, sixteen to 17, it says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As an encouragement, I would like to end with this, knowing that we all fall short and sin. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as the body of Christ, let us practice righteousness. Not that it saves us, but because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has already conquered sin and death. Hebrews 10.24-25 says, And let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet each other as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your steadfast love and grace towards us. Help us respond to you with total obedience in the name of your son Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.